Welcome again to Easter. Um, it's been so fun the last couple of weeks to kind of reflect on this idea that being a, around the church, trying to follow the teachings of Jesus, trying to be good people, like that's all great, it's noble stuff, but it really pales in comparison. It's actually nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, our risen Lord. And on Easter, we celebrate that we don't, we're not followers of a dead religion, of just a boring religion, of just a, a rules of teachings, but we are the followers of the risen Lord who is alive and transforms us. And this morning, we just get to celebrate that. One of my favorite stories um, in, in, of the resurrection account is uh, in John chapter 20. And it says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the stripes and linen were lying there, but did not go in. But then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside also. He saw and he believed. And I love this account because the Bible is great. You know, it's God's word. It's holy. It's oh, But it's also this like human interaction with God. And in this passage, we see that John's personality is starting to percolate out. Right? I don't know if you've ever had this encounter where someone's telling a story, and, and, but the point of the story is kind of lost because they have like, their own agenda. They, they kind of insert themselves in the story enough to make sure that you know that they were there, you know that they were important. And I love that in the Bible, in the Holy Scriptures, we have John who's kind of inserting himself, right, as being like, hey, I'm pretty important. And uh, right, in this passage, we get a, a little glimpse of who John is as a person, not just a follower of Christ, but as a person, right? He says that um, he was with Peter. So he's like, man, he's one of Jesus' main guys. And uh, he says that he ran to the tomb, but he ran faster than Peter, right? And he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loves. There's Peter, and then there's the one that Jesus loves, right? And the one that Jesus loves runs faster than Peter, in case you wanted to know, like he clarifies, right? Because he wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he, he kind of adds things. Like if I wrote the Gospel according to Ben, I'd be like, and Ben, the most handsome pastor on staff, blah, 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 right? I would make sure that got in there somehow. And John wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he was the disciple that Jesus loved, that he was a fast runner. And, um, and what's interesting is, all the other gospel accounts, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a totally different picture of John, right? In the gospel, according to John, he's the, he's the disciple that Jesus loves. Um, he's in relationship with him. He's always with Jesus at these important moments. And the other ones, they refer to him as the sons of thunder. And John has this huge temper, right? One time Jesus was out uh, healing somewhere, and these other guys were healing Jesus' name. And he goes out and says, Jesus, you have to rebuke them. And Jesus like, whoa, simmer down, John. And another time, um, they went to go proclaim the God's word somewhere, and they, the town rejected him. And John's like, I know Jesus. You should just like send down, you know, brimstone and fire and destroy the whole town. The disciple that Jesus loves, right? I don't know if you've ever done that. The way you tell a story versus the way someone else tells a story. And all throughout um, scripture, we get this picture of John as kind of this two-parted animal. He is probably one of the, 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 the best servants. He is a faithful servant. He is. He's, he's the younger brother. James is his older brother. They're sons of Zebedee. They're part of a wealthy fishing family. 
and they leave that to go follow Jesus. He's one of Jesus' main three guys. But of the three guys, he's the third, right? There's Peter, who's Jesus' main guy, and then James and John, and John's the younger brother. But something about John is he served Jesus faithfully all the way through. He's the only disciple who's actually at the crucifixion. He's the disciple that Jesus says, John, I want you to watch my mother. You care for my mother now as she is your mother. Like, that's a huge responsibility. There's something about the nature of John, right, that he understand duty and he understood service. And, uh, and just like all people who get duty and service, when that duty and service isn't recognized, right, there's like this little angst or even anger that kind of boils up and you see that kind of popping up here and there. But what I love about the story of Easter is that it wasn't just ending at the cross where he now has to watch Mary, but Jesus is alive and begins to mold and shape and transform John. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they knew, jo- they knew John in that beginning moments of his ministry and his life with Jesus. And the sons of thunder, that anger and rage and angst was kind of part of his story. But as he got older and wrote the Gospel of John and wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and wrote Revelation, there's this overwhelming picture of God's love and God's grace. And, and all of a sudden, he's taken on this pastoral heart. So instead of wanting to just blow up villages that didn't get it, he wanted to serve them even uh, more sacrificially. And in 1 John chapter 4, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love for us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And you see there's this strain through the story of John that duty and service is a noble thing. It's a good thing. And in fact, serving out of duty is a good thing, but it actually pales in comparison. It is nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, our risen Lord who allows us to actually care out of love. There's serving out of duty and there's caring out of love. And I, like, and I think like all people, we find passages in, in Scripture and when you relate to them, you're more attracted to them. And for me, that's how it is with this story. I can so relate to the gospel, to, to John. I so can relate to trying to live a life of duty and service. Um, I don't know if it's birth order or if it's personality or my family system, but being the oldest son um, in a divorced family, having stepsisters and stepfamily, the, the whole deal, right? I found that the best way to survive was kind of to be the good guy. My stepsister, she went wild, and so I was like, okay, I don't want to be that person, right? And, uh, and I found like being with my dad and stepmom, if I was just like, keep the peace and be cool, I was like, everything kind of worked out, right? And all of a sudden, you kind of start getting some perks, like, oh, you're the good kid, man, you're, you're willing to help uh, clear the table and empty the dishwasher, and you kind of like get some perks of that. And all of a sudden, duty and service became like this hallmark of my life. Like, I'll do this. I totally got it. And even as I became a Christian and really started getting serious about following Jesus in college, I was like, I'm going to serve Jesus. And like, especially in college for a guy, I was like, I'll go to anywhere. I'll go to Africa, Indonesia. I'll die for you all. Like, because I don't care. I'm going to serve you, Jesus. Um, I, it was all in me because I wanted this, this idea of serving was this noble, noble thing for me. And uh, what I think is interesting is as I've gotten older, um, even taking a profession, even being a pastor, right, there's something noble about, oh, I'm serving God in the church. There's like this noble thing to it. Um, But the deal is if it's only serving out of duty, there's this awful, awful underbelly. I don't know about you if you've ever like tried to do something good for somebody. And I mean, look at, we're Marine Covenant. We're all good people. We're all so clean and beautiful, good people. And, you know, and when you do these things and no one recognizes it, 
I, right, you have this thing that kind of rises up inside of you, and uh, you start getting kind of angsty, or there's just this rage that boils up. And if people don't see it, um, it happens all the time in the smallest things. Like in this, even this story with Peter and, uh, and John running the tomb, I could totally imagine like Jeff and I, like Jeff, you know, he's, he's a better runner than me, he's, even though he's way older than me. And I just think, <laughs> oh, I'm like in the shadow even when I'm running. And there's this part of me that wants to be like, but I can do something too. I can, I don't know what I can do, but I, I won't like, you know, I want people to see me. And so when people talk about running, I want to make sure they know that I can run as well. And so I throw those things in there because I need to insert myself in the story. And where I see it percolate the worst is actually with my own kids. Um, I, I found myself, even my own kids, serving them out of duty. I want to be a good parent, and I want to serve them. But then when they disrespect me, oh, this, like, rage boils up in me. Like, I don't want to brush my teeth. And, like, World War III happens at my house. Because when we serve out of duty, all of a sudden we see ourselves as noble people. Noble people who deserve respect. And serving out of duty is actually a self-serving thing. We serve to make sure that we know that we're good people to make sure people see us as good people. And if you ask any of our neighbors, we all think we're good people. We all do things to prove that we're good people. But the good news of Jesus is that we are not good people. We don't need to serve and prove that we have something to bring to the table. We don't need to serve so that people know that we are actually good people. But when we actually get connected with Jesus, he molds and he shapes us and he heals us. Excuse me, I was going to try to make the whole thing without water. I lost my whole deal But he molds us, and he shapes us, and he heals us. And what happens is serving out of duty begins to go away. And caring out of love becomes the good news of the new life in Jesus Christ. And there's a whole different thing. Like, all of a sudden having to um, serve on PTA, which is an awful thing, but sometimes people have to do it. (laughs) But now to serve on PTA and thinking, oh my goodness, God, you have put me in a place to love and care for these people. And for whatever reason, the book fair is out of control. Okay. I can love and care for these people. And it's not a duty, but it's they're real human beings that God wants to use me to love and care for and serve, right? When all of a sudden I have to, like, do the book at Little League or whatever, no one wants to do that book. But if I can do that, all of a sudden, if I see it as a way of caring for others out of love, now I'm in a position to see people, not go check me out. I did it. No one else wanted to. That doesn't help me or anybody. Everyone goes, oh, you're a jerk. But when you see them and you love them, and love all of a sudden begins to build a connection between you and them, then the kingdom of God is ushering in and breaking through. And I love the story of John because you get this picture of someone who gets duty, who gets honor, who gets service. And that's a great thing. But it is knowing Jesus that begins to transform him because serving out of duty is a good and noble thing, but it is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing our risen Lord who transforms and heals us so we can care out of love. Lucky I made it up the stairs being as old as I am. (laughs) Ben relates to John's story of serving out of duty, but knowing the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as Lord, he serves out of love. I relate to the other guy in the story. It is Peter. It is the older guy. They were the ones that ran to the tomb. John highlighted himself in his story. Luke didn't even mention John, by the way. Luke just mentioned that Peter ran to the tomb. But I resonate with Peter, who ran to the tomb. He was an older guy. He didn't get there first, but he was still a runner. Not as fast as he used to be, but he was a runner. But Peter, before the resurrection... 
Before the resurrection, Peter was a guy who loved to hang out with Jesus, while John was this guy who's super into duty and super into doing the right thing. Peter was a little bit of a yahoo. Anybody relate to being a little bit of a yahoo? Before the resurrection, Peter was, he, you could probably sum up this thing, he was good with being one of Jesus' guys, hanging around Jesus, hanging around the guys. He kind of had a place of leadership and influence, probably because he had his mouth open more often than everybody else. And he was content to hang with Jesus and hang around Jesus and hang around the people who hung around Jesus, and he found his place there. And we know he was brash. Boy, do we know he was brash. We look in Peter's story, we hear that all the time. He's the guy that pulled out the sword and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest when Jesus was getting arrested. Nobody else had a sword. Nobody else brought a sword. Nobody else was being violent about it. They were like, man, I wonder how this is going to unfold. And Peter's like, on guard, you know. (laughs) And he didn't even... It's like, did you know he lopped off his ear? It's not like he was shooting for that, right? It's not like, oh, I got it. I'm going to take your right ear right off. It wasn't that. He just sort of came wanging and just sort He was brash. I don't know if he tried to kill the guy, but he only got his ear. The guy's like, what the heck? What are you doing? Jesus is like, put this sword away, man. First of all, you're not good with it. Second of all, that's not what we came to do. We know he was brash. We know he was passionate. He was the guy that was, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. What are you doing? Where are we going? Are you going? Where are you going to go? I'll go with you, Jesus. Like, you can't go with me. He goes, I'll go anywhere. I'll die for you. That's where Jesus said to Peter, really? Because before the crow makes its, I mean the crow, before the the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But he's all passionate. He's the guy who said to Jesus when he saw Jesus walking on the water, that's cool, I want to do that. If this is you, call me and I'll come to you. He was brash and he was passionate. I relate to that. I relate to that story. I relate to that. I relate to being the guy who's out there and who's going, I'll do it. In fact, my motto of my whole life has always been, I'll do it. It's gotten me into trouble. It's gotten me committed to things I shouldn't be committed to. It's gotten me in over my head. It's gotten... It's gotten me jobs that I shouldn't have deserved. It's been my motto. In fact, when I was a young Christian, when I was a young believer, I was a freshman in college, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, the the, uh, resident advisors have to have little study breaks that they put on on their dorm floors. And I said, well, and they always had to get programs. They had to have people come in and talk about this, that, or the other thing. And I said, well, I know Jesus. I'll hold a dorm uh, study break and, uh, and I'll call it, I'll call it uh, conversations about Jesus. So at, at a University of California at Davis, I would just, they would go nine o'clock, show up, stupid Christian's going to be there. And then you could just take your shots at him. And I'd be like, I'll do that. <laughs> so it'd be me and a bunch of skeptics. I was the guy at every retreat and every uh, uh, Easter Sunday and every big moment. And I was the guy going, Jesus, I'll give my life to you. Every conference I went to, it was always ah, brash and passionate. I get all that. I get Peter. The reality, though, is that Peter, in the end, ended up, while he was loud and brash and forward, he was also unfaithful. He was unfaithful. He couldn't fulfill he was, his mouth was writing checks that his body wasn't ready to cash. And he ended up becoming a denier of Christ. He wasn't able to keep his word. He wasn't able to be faithful. But friends, Easter changed everything. 
Easter changed everything for him. After the resurrection, while Jesus had been passionate and brash and was content to hang around Jesus and have a place and have a voice and, and be wild and swing swords and, and be with Jesus' people, while be, before the resurrection, if he was willing to hang out with the disciples, that was a cool thing, but it was nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the risen Lord who then indwelled Peter. The, the risen Lord, who then, when he ascended and then sent his Holy Spirit, came then to live within Peter. And his life was night and day, friends. No longer was he just mouthing off and not being able to live, it, live up to it. He then became this powerful, impactful servant of Jesus, full of courage. And he was still brash and he was still passionate. We see him right after the story where Jesus... Uh, had raised from the dead, we see him jump out of a boat again. He saw Jesus. Of course, John mentioned it's in John. John mentioned that John's the one that recognized it was Jesus. But when Peter said, really? Is it really him? Because you're younger, you got better eyes than me. Is it really him? He then jumped out of the boat. He put on his coat and dove in, which didn't make any sense at all. He was the guy that when Jesus met with him face to face, even after his denials, he said, do you love me, Peter? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, do you love me, Peter? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He goes, do you love me, Peter? And he goes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you more than all this other stuff. He was passionate and brash still after the resurrection. But his life was never going to be the same. It wasn't anymore just swinging swords and talking a good game. His life was never going to be the same because the Spirit of God now had come in him. And we read that his, the rest of his message was two, he had two things the rest of his life. Number one, it was, you read it in his first sermon. This is after the, the ascension of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts chapter two, and Peter gets up and he gives a sermon. And what he says in that sermon is one of the two things that was messages for the rest of his life. It was, they all came and said, whoa, this God thing, what do we do? What do we do, Peter? And he, because he was the spokesman, he said, repent meaning turn around and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Listen. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will have Jesus in you. This was his whole message. Turn around and be forgiven by the love and the grace, the gift of God, and then receive Jesus in you. This was his message. And his life was never the same. And his second message, you see at the end of his life, in the book of 1 Peter, just before, I mean, he was, saw suffering coming and he knew that he was going to be killed. He was actually ended up being killed by the emperor Nero, mid-60s AD, crucified. He said, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. I don't, I'm not worthy of that. He was crucified upside down, tradition tells us. But his message in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2 was, he said, but listen, because you now have Jesus in you, you go live out an epic destiny with his leading, his power, his presence, his intimate friendship with you all the time. It's no more just about talk and flash. It's about substance and power. And he said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare to the world the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
And Peter never forgot the forgiveness. He never thought, forgot the power of, of, of Jesus in him. He said, for once you were not a people, but listen, this is his message. Now you are the people of God because the spirit is in us. And hanging around Jesus, swinging our swords, talking a good game, that's one thing. But it is nothing compared to the surpassingly great reality of knowing Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, and his spirit within us. I pray that everyone in this room would know Christ in them. Well, in this Easter story, I uh, am reading the same texts and thinking the same things about this surpassing greatness and realizing that I'm starting to be aligned emotionally with an apostle in the story, a character in the story that I hadn't, I'd known about, I've preached about, I've talked about, I've thought about, but I am drawn to uh, this year. It's the apostle Thomas. You know him as Doubting Thomas, perhaps. But there's so many things about Thomas in this resurrection story that I've loved this year as I've been working through it. There's so many things I identify with. Uh, Thomas was pragmatic. People ask me what my greatest gift is. I say, I think I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. That's my, my greatest gift. The pragmatism is something I value highly. Will this dog hunt or not? Let's just figure it out and get on with it, you know. You have Thomas being pragmatic. He's the guy who said, look, I hear you saying Jesus is not dead. I actually saw him die. It's been a dis disappointing week for me. Uh, I want to see it in order to believe it. When I can put my finger in the holes that were left by the nails, and I actually talk to him, and we wink at each other, and I hear his voice and smell his robe, when I see it, I'll believe it. He's a pragmatist. I like that. He's a guy who is committed to and ready for a fight. He's with Jesus all the way. He's not the guy that pulled out the sword, but he's definitely a guy who probably thought of pulling out the sword. Thomas is the guy who looked at Peter when Peter drew that, actually was probably a little big knife, a little dagger, and when he drew that, Thomas is the guy who secretly said, now there's my man, Peter. You take the first swing, I'll take the second. Because it was Thomas who, when Jesus insisted on going to Jerusalem, in spite of the fact that probably he was going to be arrested and persecuted, people were after him. They're all saying, Jesus, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. Let's just hang out here. It's Thomas who said, hey, if the guy insists on going to Jerusalem, then let's go down there and die with him. Fight alongside him. He was committed. And he was straightforward. Thomas is the one who, when Jesus said, I'm going now to prepare a place for you. This is pre-resurrection. You know the way. You know the place. You know the way. It's Thomas who says, in straightforward fashion, look, can we just cut through all of this philosophical stuff, these parables, this, this ungraspable teaching you're doing? How can we know the way when we don't even know where the place is? We don't know where you're going. Thomas was straightforward in his conversations with Jesus. I love him. I love that about him. Over a three-year span, Thomas had been given the privilege of knowing Jesus as a great rabbi. It was a good three years. 
pretty interesting and exciting three years. Few fishermen had that opportunity. I mean, Thomas had heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. We read it and we're impressed. What was it like to actually be there and hear it? And see the body language and the facial expressions and the way Jesus was adding to it. He had seen him do countless healings. He had watched in amazement as Jesus outmaneuvered the well-crafted and well-thought-out entrapment plans of powerful religious leaders. And every time they thought they had him, and so did Thomas, he looked at Jesus and said, oh man, look at that brilliance with the way he evades them. And this guy's something else, my rabbi. Thomas was in the parade when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he heard people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And he heard in those cries and saw in their hearts. Passive, but very clear references to Jesus as Messiah. This is the one, our conquering king. And that was all good. But Thomas, like these others, was soon to recognize that no matter how good it was to have Jesus as your teacher, Jesus as your trainer, to be a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, no matter how good that was, and it was good. It was like nothing when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as risen Lord, risen Messiah, risen Rabbi. He, heard, he would hear Jesus teach during those three years and often say, wow, marvelous. But to know Jesus as risen goes way beyond a wow, how marvelous moment. That is a true, oh my God moment, which actually is a moment Thomas had. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, this is after Jesus' his arrest and his, and his murder, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. If for the sake of those who haven't heard me say this a thousand times already, I just can never get over that text. These, Jesus died. These guys are locked up in a room for fear of the Jews. They're all together. They're, they're afraid they're going to get arrested. They don't know what's going to happen. Everything's up in the air. Three years of planning up in dust. And they're in the room sort of shaking with every, you know, when you're a little kid and you're sleeping at night and you're afraid because your dad's off for the weekend and, or whoever's your protector in your home is off for the weekend and a branch, your mind goes crazy, right? A little branch in the middle of the night rubs against your window. That's not a branch. That's the boogeyman coming into your window, you know, and there's nobody there to protect you. And that's the attitude of these guys locked up in this room. And then all of a sudden, through the wall, look at that wall right there. Through the wall comes Jesus, who was dead. Through the wall. You could at least use a door. He doesn't use a door. He comes through the wall. And what does he say? Relax. Don't be afraid. It's just me. He doesn't say that. He just says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's the understatement of the scripture right there. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I imagine they ran to a huddle at first. And when he showed them what had happened to him, and they recognized who it was. They relaxed. I think they ran to him. Again, Jesus said, now, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, now receive this Holy Spirit that Jeff was talking about. And if you forgive anyone's sins, which they had seen him do countless times, 
their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. They're taking on his ministry now. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas didn't see all of this. Jesus come through the wall. And... But he said to them, look, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I'm not believing it. A week, and by the way, Thomas was not locked in the room for fear of the leaders. He was out in the streets. What the heck? Life's not worth living now. Kill me. Or I'm going back to fishing or whatever. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. And Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, giving Thomas the same experience as everybody else. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side where the spear had cut Jesus, where the lance had cut Jesus. And he said, Stop doubting and now believe. And Thomas says, Oh, my God. That's used so flippantly so often, OMG. This is the great divine OMG. He says, probably bowing down, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, have not put their fingers in the holes, have not seen me come right into the room when the doors were locked, like people in 2014 in Marin County, and still believe. Thomas had a great experience with Jesus as his teacher and rabbi, but it was nothing compared to what he experienced when he experienced Jesus as risen Lord. He had been invited to experience the resurrected Jesus as the others had experienced him. And you've got to appreciate the progression of thinking and commitment and experience in Thomas's life. It was an experience that had surpassed anything they had imagined before. And then Thomas was initially reluctant to respond as though he had gone as far as he could ever go in this relationship with Jesus. He was living as though that was great, that was fantastic, this is it. What he had received from Jesus up to that point was very helpful. In fact, life-changing, life-altering. He would never be the same. If he never got more, it would still have been good. But even three years of walking side-by-side, side, talking face-to-face -face with Jesus was about to be overtaken, bested, left in the dust by the surpassing greatness of knowing and experiencing Christ Jesus as risen, resurrected rabbi, alive no longer in the grave leader, far surpassing. And Thomas experienced that resurrected Jesus and the relationship that he had with Jesus, which was already pretty real, was transformed from a great friendship to a lifelong mission. And a faith that Thomas had assumed had reached its pinnacle, reached its climax, was introduced to a surpassing and inexhaustible world of opportunity and adventure. It's like Jesus said, put your fingers in here. Believe now. Let's go. And Thomas went.
Our question today is this for everyone here. What about you? What's your response to the news of resurrection? What will you do, what will you as an individual do with his invitation to experience this surpassing greatness? To go from, what will you do to go from, as Jesus invites us, from surviving to thriving? What will you do to go from doubting the validity of the resurrection story to, to, the, to get to the point where you're actually begging for it to be true, longing for it? What will you do to go from satisfied with Jesus to excited about Jesus, to go from living to actually coming alive? Because that's the invitation. Whatever it is that you're experiencing now in a relationship with Jesus, whether it's recognizing him as a good and moral teacher, and that's good, a guide for here's how we should live, that's good. But all of that, it, it pales in comparison to actually experiencing Christ as a risen Savior, no matter how good that experience is. It's like the decimal point gets moved, <clears throat> surpassing greatness. We're going to receive our offering now. And in receiving our offering, this is going to be one of the, the, the final movement, really, of our, our time of worship together. <laughs> and we're going to invite you to come forward and give your financial offering. But we want you to give even more than a financial offering if that's what is going on in your heart. There are stations for you to come forward and place an offering in the basket up front. There are two stations toward the back next to the sound booth on either side if you prefer to go that direction too. And these are times we come and, and give a financial gift to support the ministry of our church. But there's a lot more to offering than that. You may want to write down a prayer that's on, on the, use one of the cards on the back of the seat and that prayer is your offering and you'll notice when you come to the table this morning that there are stones and sharpie pens at each of the tables here's what we're encouraging everyone in the room to do to ask yourself the question first of all know Jesus I know about Jesus I study Jesus I know his teaching know him you guys are talking like there's a friendship here. There's some sort of an engagement that's beyond an intellectual engagement. And you're right. When my wife Brenda became a Christian, she had already been living a good and moral life. And she knew that was good. Her good parents had taught her that. She already believed in honesty and care and mercy and tenderness. And you do right by your fellow human being. And then some friends from work told her about the relationship with Christ that we've been referring to to receive him as leader and to receive his Holy Spirit and be transformed from the inside. And she did that. She prayed a prayer that said, Jesus, I just never knew that I could know you like this. I wanna be yours. I give my life to you. I receive forgiveness for every mistake I've made in my life. I'm a Christian from now on. She said, I would have done that way sooner. I just had never actually heard. Maybe that's you today and you want to add to whatever goodness you've known and expressed in the name of God, what Jesus offers to know him, to be forgiven by him, to be in relationship with, with him and commit your life to him. And if that's the commitment you want to make today, then when you come forward, take one of these stones and all you need to do is put 
a cross on the stone. Just take the pen, write a cross on the stone, draw it, and place that stone in the offering plate. That's your offering today. You're giving the Lord God your life. By placing that cross on that stone, I'm saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to receive forgiveness for my sin and live into the greatness, the surpassing greatness that he offers. There's a second commitment you can make as we're receiving this offering. Some of us, many of us, maybe most of us, are already followers of Christ. We've already made a commitment like that. But we're not quite experiencing this launching into the surpassing greatness that comes from knowing the resurrected Christ. We're not experiencing the power of that resurrection or we keep doubting it or we keep denying it or acting as though he stayed in the grave and we just philosophically made this up. Because let's be clear, we're actually saying, we're, we're so crazy that we're actually believing that there was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. And from that day forward, everything else was made irrelevant. It was the death of death. There might be something keeping you as a follower of Christ from moving to that, the experience of that surpassing greatness of knowing a risen Savior. Take up a stone. Symbolize it. Write it down. Addiction, doubt, or some symbol that represents whatever it is that's your blockage. Take that stone and you lay it in the offering. And you're saying by doing that, you take this God, you do something with it, because you know what? I want to have not just the wandering in the streets, I won't believe it till I see it experience of Thomas. I want to have an oh my God experience like Thomas. Something that makes everything that went before it seem as though it was nothing when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus as risen Savior. Come to the front, move to the back, wherever you're going to go. Anytime during these next couple of songs, give your offering.